Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to an exciting new podcast series, Popcorn and Compliance at the Movies with Tom Fox and Jay Rosen. In this podcast series, Jay and I are going to take a look at movies, both classic and contemporary movies for compliance lessons, business lessons, leadership lessons, and life lessons. This podcast series is a new offering from the Compliance Podcast Network, and today it is sponsored by One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode, Jay and I take a look at the recently released music biopic Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the story of Freddie Mercury and the group Queen. Some of the highlights include how the movie came together after years in development and how it could have been a much different picture with some of the players who were initially involved. The stars were spot on in their portrayals of band members, both living and dead. How do you wrap a story of redemption around a character you know will die of a terminal illness? I indulge in my great love of tracking shots at the movies, and Jay explains how the story structure works in this movie. We have numerous compliance takeaways for you that I know you will enjoy and find useful in your compliance program going forward. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Popcorn and Compliance is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I am here for our premiere episode of Popcorn and Compliance. Jay Rosen, recovering screenwriter and FCPA monitor, is here with me. Jay, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Uh, this is really great to do this. We've uh, been talking about this one for a while, so I'm excited that we've gotten to episode one. So, Jay, as you know, this week we've been running a, a redo of our uh, Star Wars uh, podcast series on the intersection of Star Wars and compliance, rebranded as Popcorn and Compliance. But this is our first new episode. So uh, we are going to do a, a, not a new movie, but a current movie. And I'm very excited today to take a look at Bohemian Rhapsody. So um, why don't you give us a little bit of background on the movie? Sure. So this is um, definitely falls into what Hollywood likes to call uh, a musical biopic. Um, their ba- remaining band members were heavily involved in uh, getting the script together, uh, doing the casting. Uh, at one point, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen was attached to the project to play Freddie Mercury. Uh, they flirted with him for uh, two or three years, but the uh, ever-present creative differences left led to Sasha leaving the product uh, project. And now uh, the person who stepped in to play um, Freddie is this wonderful actor named Rami Malek. Uh, you may recognize him from some of the uh, Night at the Museum movies. He played the young... King Tut, I believe, and he's most famous as of late for being on the USA uh, science fiction uh, drama called Mr. Robot. So, uh, again, when you do these kind of biopics, 
it really centers on who you get to be that person. And I think Rami has uh, really inherited, uh, just allowed uh, Freddie Murphy, excuse me, Freddie Murphy, uh, Freddie Mercury to seep into his uh, body. And he's really has a transformative uh relationship and uh he did an incredible job i think it was like watching freddie mercury i've never seen queen but uh can you can you comment on on that angle tom Uh, so uh as you know my wife is a huge queen fan and so it was was with some trepidation that she went to the movie because she loved freddie mercury and um her comment was he was uh rami malik was so good it gave her goosebumps so, frankly, that's about as high a praise as I think uh, an actor playing uh, Freddie Mercury can have. I guess the the thing that struck me about the portrayal was really two, maybe three. One was the singing, which you, uh, in any music, bi- uh, music biopic you have to address, um, whatever it may be. But uh, he had the mannerisms of Freddie, the, the, the facial tics, the way he would uh, click his uh, his mouth because of his uh, increased or a large number of molars that gave him the ability to open open up his jaws and have a, a fabulous vocal range but also I thought it was good in, in showing uh, some of the angst and anguish that he personally suffered that perhaps we could uh, touch upon a little bit later but uh, a great great performance but as great as his performance was Jay I, I have to pick out Uh, or talk about the co-stars of the rest of Queen. Uh, I mean, I thought they had Brian May uh, and Roger Taylor down to a T. Uh, Those guys are both still alive, so I have seen them. And John Deacon, I I didn't get to see him live, but, um, I mean, I thought my wife thought he was great. But uh, the Brian May uh, actor, uh, portrayer, I I thought was uh, just fabulous in portraying the way Brian May is now. And clearly he studied it, uh, studied Brian May, as 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 did the actor who played Roger Taylor. So I thought the casting of the uh, the primary four were great. Uh, the rest of the cast, um, uh, well-known English character actors, if that's still a phrase, uh, I thought were all excellent um, in their roles uh, as well. What do you think about the uh, cameo of Mike Myers as the record exec? Uh, actually my wife had to tell me that was Mike Myers. Um, I didn't even recognize him. The, the portrayal was great. Uh, I thought, uh, you know, it was, um, uh, very stereotypical. I think of what everyone would think of a record executive, uh, very demanding, very focused on the bottom line, not particularly uh, concerned with, uh, the artistic portion of it. Uh, yet, uh, he's the guy that brings their music to people like you and me. So, uh, uh certainly a necessary part of the business, but, uh, for, from a caricature or, um, a stereotype, I thought it was a, a great portrayal and, uh, it's, it's good to see Mike Myers really in anything. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, basically from an Easter egg perspective, uh, the wink there is that Queen basically took on, uh, new significance when the movie Wayne's world came out and there was uh, a lot of people who didn't know who queen was. They weren't uh, 
they weren't kind of uh, seasoned like you and I. So that Wayne's World uh, production and when they're all driving around and I think the Pacer and they're rocking out to Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, that really established a whole new fan base for Queen. And I think it was a nice uh, tip of the cap to have Mike Myers play the uh, record executive. A great inside point, Jay. So um, now should we talk a little bit about the uh, the structure of the movie? And sure. uh, we'll try not to give away too much because we still hope that there are fans out there who are going to want to check it out. Is it too late for a spoiler alert? We're going to talk about the end of Queen? Uh, or the end Queen? of Bohemian Rhapsody? Well, there is no end of Queen, right? You saw them right. in Vegas as of late. So uh, I don't think we'll spoil too much. Okay, and Queen Tour tickets go on sale tomorrow, people. So uh, you may be listening to this after they've gone on sale, but hop on them. So uh, I'll start it off a little bit. Um, We are in a a small uh, club, you know, kind of like the Beatles started out in the Cavern Club. And there are these, uh, this uh, foursome who are, rocking and rolling and trying to uh, get something to happen. And uh, what happens is their lead singer uh, abandons them to go for another group. And at that point, it presents an opportunity for Freddie Mercury to step in and um, basically audition and see if he can join the group, which will eventually become Queen. Uh, after that part, we, uh, we do like in most movies, there is a, a time of training, a time of the band getting to know each other and, uh, fretting opening up. And he was, I guess, a bit more reserved at the beginning of, uh, meeting his lads. And as they go forward, uh, they start to gain, uh, following in the pub scene. And we start to see, uh, Freddie growing more assured, uh, helping the band write songs and helping them take the next move, which would be trying to get a recording deal. Jay, the uh, the other thing that kind of weaves through this is the personal life of Freddie, uh, the personal life, including his home life. Uh, I had not fully appreciated. Uh, I knew he was from Madagascar. What I had not appreciated was uh, he was uh, a Farsi uh, from India and his family had immigrated to uh, Madagascar, and then uh, they had come to London. So um, sort of a family background of, of that type of uh, ethnic group. Uh, also, uh, his relationship with Mary um, was not – I it, when I saw that, when he proposed in the movie – sorry, spoiler alert again – I leaned over to my wife and I said, did you know he was married? And she looked at me and said, of course. Uh, so uh, – a lot of interesting parts about his personal life woven in with this story that I thought really worked from the not only this uh, fa- uh, movie goer perspective, but from the screenwriter perspective as well. Indeed. So um, also structurally, what's interesting with the movie and what happens sometimes in, um, I guess, not necessarily a biopic per se, but uh, the creative uh, license can be taken with the timing. And the way the movie starts off, uh, besides the linear portion of him 
joining the band and taking over and, and helping to lead them in their conquests is that the movie starts off, uh, is it the day of Live Aid or maybe a, a couple days before? And morning of. Uh, morning of. I think that was July the 13th, 1984, 1985. And uh, at this point in the band's uh, trajectory, uh, basically, Freddie is... Uh, been off on his own he's been kind of estranged from the band and uh, as we learn later on they've been trying to get to freddie to see if uh, he would like to be part of live aid because it was one of the largest philanthropic efforts at its time and this is going to be a, a point where freddie gets back together with his mates and they're all worried about uh, how they're going to do and uh, whether or not they're going to be relevant and how they're going to be accepted by the global audience. And at the time, I think it was, what, like over a billion people were going to be watching Queen and and watching Live Aid. So that's another thread that's uh, woven in and out of the story. So, Jay, the the framing of the story between the – uh, when he walks on the stage for Live Aid and then the Live Aid performance, uh, from your perspective, does that violate any timeline or really any continuity? Because I felt it really framed kind of where we were going with that story and that indicated to me or communicated to me that we were going to tell a story basically from uh, 1972-73 up to uh, 1985. Uh, I, I think it's a perfect framing device, and just like you said, you, if you know your wife is a true fan, so there weren't going to be any uh, surprises to her. There were certain notes that needed to be played, so this is a note that needed to be played. And I think, you know, from a creative perspective, using Live Aid as that framing device lets us know as an audience that we're going to get back to, to the to that you know to that early morning where the movie starts out. So I think it's a great starting point. And then we end up back in there uh, when the, when the band comes through. So I, I think it's a, it's a great device. Um, and sometimes, you know, you don't need to do, you don't need to show every part of reality. You know, you don't have to show a string breaking on a guitar and having to get it restrung. So um, it's 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 a great device from my uh, perspective on how to suck the audience in and to get them, uh, you know, to get them bought into the story. So, Jay, the other uh, foreshadowing that that came from that introduction that you mentioned that struck me even when I saw it was uh, it really begins at Freddie's mansion as he prepares to to drive to Wembley Stadium for Live Aid. And the thing that struck me when I saw that opening was how lonely he was. Uh, he, he was physically alone. Uh, and the way he went through his home, getting prepared, putting his clothes on, makeup, um, all of those things, it just really emphasized to me his personal loneliness. And that story certainly played out throughout the, um, the movie. Um, and if there was a redemption to that part of his story, it may have concluded on that stage at Wembley, uh, at least for the purposes of the movie. Yes, and, and let's not discount his two ever-present cats who were there. So, you know, there's there's a lot of people who take a bad rap for being cat people, but uh, 
Freddie did always have those cats there to uh, give him a little bit of uh, companionship. Right. So let me, uh, there's, I've just been dying to talk about this inside uh, baseball uh, topic, which is one of my favorite. I'm a huge fan of camera shots, camera angles. Um, And they had uh, one of the greatest tracking shots I've ever seen, Jay, near the end where they, it was in the, at the end of the movie when they were playing Live Aid at Wembley, I think uh, the numbers of att- in attendance were 100,000 at Wembley, uh, a part of the billion people worldwide who watched and or listened, of, of which I was one. But they did a tracking shot throughout from the back of Wembley up to the stage. Now, I recognize that Wembley was um, either computer-generated or computer-generated. Uh, generated, uh, overlaid with uh, shots from the real Wembley. Nevertheless, uh, it was a great tracking shot to get the sense and scale of uh, the size of the crowd. And not only how big Live Aid was, but how massive that crowd was. And when a singer or a band can get a crowd really to, to unite as one, the power of that um, when they were singing along uh, really, uh, I thought it was something very, very special, but, um, uh, I can't tell you why I have a, such a place in my heart for tracking shots, but I do. And, uh, that one was one of the best I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, they actually recreated Wembley. So they built off a portion of that. And then I'm sure you're also correct, Tom, that they married it with some computer generated effects. But uh, that, that does give you the the size and, and the scope. And just, again, it reaffirms the vitality of the band when they were able to, to get back together. And it wasn't like, you know, they they just left off a couple of days ago. They uh, within the film, they worked really hard over a period of a couple of weeks to get themselves ready and to, uh, you know, be able to play that gig and be part of um, Live Aid. Uh, do we want to move on to a, l- a little bit more about um, the personal and the personnel decisions or which Absolutely. way should we go now? Absolutely. So here's here's what I wanted to ask, Jay, from your perspective, does uh, certainly uh, the story of redemption is well known uh, in novel and screenwriting. Uh, and here we had a story of redemption uh but we have a story of redemption within a larger story that perhaps could be considered not redemptive. So um, one of the things that struck me in preparing for this podcast was, and as you alluded to when you started out, the the movie that didn't get made or the movie that could have been, and they could have gone in a lot of different directions uh, because, um, as we all know, Freddie Mercury died of AIDS. And so there was a, a death after uh, live aid, not immediately. Uh, it was a few years later, but certainly tragic for the rock and roll world, and, and tragic for a lot of reasons. His his death, his family, his friends, his partner at the time. Uh, so, how do you kind of deal with uh, that uh, ultimate tragedy within the context of trying to tell a story about redemption? And uh, as you started off with, what are the personal aspects of this story? Yeah, well, a lot of times, um, you know, there are famous screenplays where the character does not live at the end. And two of the ones that, you know, immediately come to mind is uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So we never see them die, but we decide we, we see them decide to 
to take a jump for it when they're jumping off that cliff into the water. Uh, and another example would be Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise, that they realize that they're at a point where they can't turn back anymore. Uh, there's uh, tens of uh, 20s police cars chasing them down to the edge, and Harvey Keitel's trying to keep them from going, but they rev up the car they go off the cliff and they hold each other's hands. So, um, you know, this movie could have been maudlin. There could have been, you know, uh, scenes around a deathbed. That doesn't happen. So I think the filmmakers handled it the best they could and wanted this movie to leave on a very positive note that uh, Freddie was able to find a companion and that he continued to perform until he was no longer able to with his disease. Now there has been uh, questions about whether or not the timeline was presented correctly in the movie. And, you know, that's always going to happen because there's artistic license. So I think in the way the band um, that they were heavily involved they're uh, they're worried about the image of not only Freddie, but of queen and, with them just, as you said, announcing a 2019 tour, I think uh, everything uh, worked out the way it should. And, you know, if you look at the box office, uh, as of uh, December 4th, it's grossed $166 million in the U.S., which is 30% of the global box office. And in the rest of the world, it's $384 million, which is almost 70%. So most movies now probably go um, 60-40 uh, with the U.S. and the global, or sometimes it's a 50-50. So you can definitely see that from a financial perspective, the movies succeeded quite well. And worldwide now it's at 550 uh, million dollars. So we're at a half a billion right now, and there's a lot of the holidays left to play through, and then you have the life after being in the film. So I think the personal um, choices that the band made uh, allowed them to produce the type of document that they wanted to uh, assemble about how the band came together, how they lost relevancy, and how that relevancy came back once they went to Live Aid. So Jay, that uh, that gives me an entree to to maybe move to um, compliance, because our podcast is popcorn and compliance. And uh, one thing you said struck me uh, when you were giving the uh, sales figures or ticket uh, numbers was how much of the Hollywood uh, machine now is geared towards the non-U.S. audience. And when you have a non-U.S. audience, that in uh, has implications for the FCPA if you have foreign government touch points. Certainly, movies are made outside the United States, and every one of those is going to have a foreign government touch point. Even if it's uh, a movie is incorporated in the country where it's made, uh, there are going to be U.S. actors going, U.S. crew, uh, perhaps even a U.S. screenwriter or two. Um, so there's always going to be a touch point, and that uh, movie crew outside the United States or those hired outside the United States may be seen as employees, agents, or consultants to a U.S. company. So there may be FCPA implications there. But one of the things that I think we both wanted to do was take a look at the movies from fr some compliance perspectives and see what lessons that we might be able to draw for our listeners that they could either think about their compliance programs or actually 
implicate direct, or excuse me, uh, in, in input directly into their um, compliance programs or the way they practice compliance at their corporations. So were there any uh, points that really resonated with you uh, in Bohemian Rhapsody from the compliance perspective? Yeah, there are a couple points I'd like to make, Tom. Um, first of all, uh, when we talked about it in, in the first uh, third of the movie, when uh, Freddie got his chance to uh, step in and audition to be the lead singer of what would be Queen, uh, at that point, he really had to make a, a split-second decision that he had been watching the band for a while, he had learned all their lead songs, and when uh, inspiration met opportunity and he had a chance to audition for the band, he was ready to go for it and just, you know, took it on. And I think that uh, the lesson I would pull away from that, from the compliance practitioner is just like Freddie, you need to be ready uh, for any type of event that might come your way. And when it does, there is no time to hesitate. You just have to kind of jump in and realize that you've been trained to the best of your ability that you have what you need. And if you don't, there's always fellow practitioners you can call, but you need to have the training done ahead of time. So when a situation comes to you, you're able to act. So that would be, uh, you know, point number one about being prepared and being able to step in. The other point that I would take from the movie is that uh, there's a nice montage where the band is going through all sorts of different ways to make sounds, to get people involved, to, to, you know, go to the next level. And I think as a compliance practitioner within an organization, whether it's domestic or global, you have to realize that what you're doing, the training that you're trying to uh, get to permeate, uh, permeate your organization is not going to be static it's always going to change. And if it's always changing, you like the band queen need to keep innovating and coming up with new approaches and coming up with new messaging. And just because something worked last year and and you got 90% of the people to take the training, well, good on you, but guess what? There's another year coming around the corner. So let's keep innovating. Let's keep changing. Let's keep the message fresh and let's try to keep our people on point. So, Jay, I had three points that really uh, this movie spoke to me from the compliance perspective upon. Uh, the first one was the scene where Brian May uh, shows his development of the audience stomp, uh, which is two stomps and a clap. Uh, I don't have a hard enough floor here uh, to give you an, a, a visual, excuse me, an audio uh, demonstration, uh, but it's two stomps and a clap, and that is now ubiquitous. Uh, we play it in Houston at Astro Games, except it's Godzilla who does it. But the process was that Brian saw a great amount of audience participation in their live concerts, and he wanted to find a way to give them an opportunity to uh, further that participation and be a part of the entire experience. And the compliance lesson I would draw from that, Jay, is many compliance officers really don't focus on their customer base uh, in terms of uh, what their customer base can bring to the compliance program. The customer base of a compliance officer is its uh, company's employees. And 
the more you can incorporate ideas and innovation from your employee base, the more you will fully operationalize your compliance program. Uh, one of the things that is critical in design thinking is the testing of ideas with your customer base uh, so and getting feedback and incorporating that feedback into the final product. So the use of the customer base here and giving the customer base, i.e. the audience members at concerts, a simple three-step process they could engage in to further the experience I thought was uh, very interesting. Uh, the second was uh, just the creative process in general, and that was most clearly shown in how they recorded Bohemian Rhapsody, the song Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, that was written largely, uh, very largely by Freddie. Nevertheless, um, all of the members contributed, uh, certainly in the playing, but also in the development. And uh, you would probably be much better to, to articulate this but in the creative process of making a movie, it's really a collaborative effort, not the effort solely of a screenwriter or a director or anyone. Uh, the same is true in music and song uh, as well, unless it's sort of, you know, just me sitting down and, uh, with a guitar in front of a mic. Um, the commercial viability of that exercise may well be limited uh, to my mother and my daughter. But um, the creative process, and, and that really speaks a lot to compliance because co compliance really needs to think about the creative process. How can you take the information from uh, internal audit, from HR, from a CFO, from accounts payable, and incorporate that into an effective compliance program? It certainly ties into the first part of utilizing your audience, but the more you can engage others in the creative process around compliance, the more you're going to have an effective compliance program and a more fu fully operationalized compliance program. And the third one is based uh, really upon a speech I heard Amy Much, the Global Ethics and Compliance Officer at um, Under Armour, give at uh, Converge 2018, where she talked about learning from your mistakes. And uh, we've identified redemption as a key theme in this movie. And one of the points that moved us along towards the redemption was when Freddie um, reached back uh, to connect with the former band members he had left to go off on a solo career. And there was a lot of tension um, when they met, and he had clearly realized he had made a mistake because he needed them as much as they needed him. But when he uh, he said, um, you know, what do you got, what will it take to get me back in the band? And they ticked off really some financial considerations like sharing of royalties and revenues, and his only word was done. So uh, sometimes you, uh, Amy really uh, drove this message home at Converge, which was when you make a mistake, learn from it. Uh, incorporate the lessons back into your compliance program. If something doesn't work, why didn't it work? And here, uh, Freddie's solo career didn't work, frankly, because he wasn't with his three other bandmates. Uh, he was with people who were agreeing with what he wanted and what he wanted was not necessarily the highest artistic achievement for him. His highest artistic achievement was when he worked with three other diverse individuals, uh, and they came together as a, a unit stronger than the sum of the parts. So um, some, I thought some pretty good compliance lessons there. So to rate our movies, we will give out buckets of popcorn. We will have a half full bucket of popcorn, we will have a full bucket of popcorn, and we will have an overflowing bucket of popcorn. So what did uh, the boys give 
the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm going to give it an overflowing bucket of popcorn. How's that? And I will also award this movie an overflowing bucket of popcorn. Two overflowing buckets of popcorn. It doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. So um, you want to take us home, Jay? Sure. So um, on behalf of uh, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, uh, the Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for the inaugural episode of Popcorn and Compliance. And this week we spoke about the creative process and the ethics and compliance lessons that could be drawn from Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, that's a wrap. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you have enjoyed our initial and first new podcast in this great new podcast series, Popcorn and Compliance. Jay and I had a ton of fun preparing for it. Obviously, we both got to see the movie. So we're going to be able to watch uh, some movies we love, uh, some of the new movies, and hopefully impart some compliance lessons learned to you in a manner uh, that uh, you will find useful and continue our journey of storytelling and compliance. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Thank you for again for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. And join us in a couple of weeks where we take a look at the Christmas season movie Elf and mine it for compliance lessons. Popcorn and Compliance is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.